0: Hi, friends. This is episode 72 of the Bible Lab Podcast.
1: You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy
0: Ice. Hi, everybody. So glad you came back for another episode. Today, we are going to have so much fun taking a look at how God the Father saves us. A lot of times when we look at how God saves us, we look at Jesus and what he did on the cross. But we're going to take an even deeper look because that's what it talks about in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2. And I can't wait for you to hear how the... The community opened up this conversation and really dug deep to see what the Bible really says about God's character here. If you haven't already, make sure you go to our website, thebiblelab.com, and go to the episodes page and make sure that you go to the third session of the uh, series called God's Blueprint and make sure that you get that study guide because it'll really help you understand where we're going, what we're talking about, and everything about this amazing God who loves you so much. You know a lot of times people look at God the Father as this really judgmental God who just really is looking for justice. And they look at Jesus as the God who's saying it's not about justice, it's about mercy and grace and I'll even die for you. The biggest tragedy of all is that throughout time, we haven't realized what Jesus said when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and we've missed how amazing God the Father really is. But you're going to hear it today. I can't wait for you to get to it. Welcome to the Bible Lab. All right, you guys ready to go? Here we go, number one. Most of the people in church act like spiritual zombies. Most of the people in church act like spiritual zombies. Wow, okay. So I am seeing about 70% no. I'm seeing about about 20% yes and about 10% maybe. I wanna know what you guys are thinking on that because I've got no clue what you mean on that so we're going to come to that in our conversation because some of you are probably saying well it's okay because I don't understand what you're talking about zombies in church <laughs> number two you can recognize you can recognize saved people because they're doing good works you can recognize saved people because they're doing good work oh this is not what I expected because I'm seeing about 95 percent no and a oh a couple of yeses two three yeses and the rest maybes. I I did not expect this response. We're going to talk about this toward the end, so I may have to kind of rush us along in the middle, so if you're getting a little wordy and I get a a, a little bit pushy, you'll understand why, because we have to get to this. Because in our scripture reading today, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, at the end, it says you're not saved by good works, but you were made to do good works. So what in the world is that talking about? So should saved people be known by doing good works? Wait, that's, you, just, you had a no card, sir. I'm sorry, you can't change your vote. Okay, you have a yes card now, okay. Obviously, I just didn't see you. Yes. So we're going to talk about that because this is probably an argument I've heard my entire life in the church about the role of faith and works. And perhaps you've had that conversation as well. Because the Bible in some way, it seems to contradict itself here if you look at it from a certain angle. Are we supposed to do good works and that's how we're known, or are good works not part of your salvation? Here, it has a really interesting angle that I think most of us miss that God wants us to understand. And so we're going to talk about that even if I have to cut you off. (laughs) Number three, besides believing, there's something you must do in order to receive eternal life besides believing there is something you must do in order to receive eternal life. I love what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a 50-50 split in yes and no's, and I'm seeing about, oh, I saw about five or six maybes. This is great. Once again, is this the argument of the ages? What must I do to be saved? Is it just believing? Is there something else I have to do? And so we're going to talk about that because especially when we get to verses eight through 10, Paul tries to make it as clear as he can in as few words as possible. And so we're going to talk about about how you're saved. Uh, Number four, God the Father and the Son have different roles. One must judge and one must pay the price for sin. Oh, look at this. Okay. We are, the majority are saying no. It looks like about 75% are saying no, and about 15% yes, and 10% maybes. Okay, this is a tough one. I understand why some of you are saying yes. I understand why the majority are saying no. But by the end, perhaps I'll be so confusing, we'll all say maybe. Okay, (laughs) number five, number five, but we're going to dig into that. Because it's really important to understand, we have parsed out God the Father from God the Son, from God the Spirit so much that we've actually, uh, I'm trying to use a word other than neutered because that sounds horrible, but we've taken away the power uh, and, and the holisticness of each member of the Godhead by segmenting them into specific roles that we have stated, but the Bible states something else when you look at the whole of scripture. So we're gonna talk about that today uh, as we start out. But lastly, number five, I have to establish faith in order to be saved by God's grace. I have to establish faith in order to be saved by God's grace. Okay, we are all over the place here. It looks like the yeses edge out the noes 55 to 40%. And then of course the rest of you that realize it's a trick question are saying maybe. (laughs) All right, we've got a lot to go through today because Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 takes where we were in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about all these promises that God has for you, this relationship that he wants to have with you, and it tries to unpack it a little bit more into the concrete. And so before we start this, I I think one of the major mistakes that people make approaching individual verses In Ephesians, especially Ephesians 2 through 4, is by taking it out of context. Fortunately, we have the history of the last two weeks going through chapter one. And now coming into chapter two, we have a background of understanding what Paul is inspired to share with the church in Ephesus. But because we have historically taken a few of these verses just on their own and used them as proof text, we miss a holistic picture of God. Because remember, the Bible lab isn't here to show you what you're supposed to do to be saved, which is going to be really hard for some of you as we have this conversation. The Bible lab is here to help you understand the God who saves. And so we're going to focus more on what has God done and what is God doing than what have you done and what should you not be doing. Does that make sense? And so even last week, I noticed it's really hard because our conversation goes into what must I do? But what we're going to focus in on more here is what does this say about God and his character? So to get us in the right frame of mind, uh, some of you might want to comment, so raise your comment card and we'll bring a microphone to you to respond to this question. Why do you think that the vast majority of the population grew up viewing God the Father as a God of wrath and judgment and God the Son as a God of love and forgiveness? Why do you think the vast majority of the population grew up with those two very distinctly different pictures of God the Father versus God the Son. What did you notice growing up that kind of fed into this, this difference of opinion? I need a microphone over here. This difference of opinion between who is God the Father and who is God the Son? I need a mic there, and I need a mic there. Cool. We'll start, we'll start right here in the middle. Thank you. Thank you, Dante.
2: So I'm not sure exactly where, if it's in the Bible or where I've seen this, but I remember growing up and hearing that when we sin, Jesus would plead to the Father, (laughs) Father, my blood, my blood. And by doing that, then we would be able to be freed from that Ah. through Christ's sacrifice. So in that picture, you see, it seems like God the Father is trying to determine penalty, and Christ is the one that's trying to forgive and trying to provide yes. an advocate. Yes. But when you read scripture, it's not truly, that's not the way it is.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's what I heard growing up. Do you realize when you sin, you know, we, we paint this picture of, okay, humanity sins. Now you ask for forgiveness. Now Jesus has to go beg to the bloodthirsty tyrant, God the Father, please don't, please don't kill him. Please don't kill. I'll, I'll I'll take the licking. I'll I'll let you. I'll, I'll I'll take their stripes. You can kill me because I know you're so angry at humanity. You need death because the wages of sin is death. And God the Father is seething there, and the only thing that's keeping him from killing you is Jesus, who's saying, "Don't whoop 'em, paw." I'll take their licks. What does that do? Uh, I believe it was William Barclay that actually wrote that that view of God actually puts God the Father and Christ over and against each other in sense of purpose, in sense of salvation. Because one is saying blood is demanded, the other is saying I'll give my blood. But God the Father is not in any way sacrificing. It's only Jesus who's sacrificing. And because that picture has been Jesus is the one who came to die for you, but God will smite you if you don't ask for forgiveness. In the final judgment, if, you, if there's a single sin that you have not asked for forgiveness, then you're lost. Um, it set Jesus and God over and against each other, and that is not theologically accurate. You cannot find that in Scripture. So to answer your intro... No, you can't find it in Scripture because it's not there. It came about especially during the Great Awakening, the end of the 1700s. Uh, Jonathan Edwards and, and others during this Great Awakening, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, Paradise Lost. These sermons, who these guys were very well-meaning because they're trying to awaken the apathetic. Um, they drew pictures of a God who was angry, who was Just only held back from his wrath because of a loving Jesus. And because of that, it it rewrote theology for now, you know, almost two and a half centuries of of that. Over here, yeah.
2: I personally think that when we have done a superficial job of reading the Bible, that we have seen in the old testament where God destroyed many people who bowed to the golden calf. How he just wiped them out. Yeah. And some people say, boy, that's a God of vengeance. But On the other hand, they forget there was the same God who parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to go through. Yeah. On the other side of the coin. Yeah. And we find in the New Testament, too, that Jesus went about healing people, feeding people, multitudes. What a kind God he was. Yeah. But then on the other hand, we find out how Ananias and Sapphira were stricken down, too, because of lying to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So if we take the whole context in together, I think we see a more balanced picture. Yes. And you know, Philip was one that said to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes. I think we need to keep those things in perspective and balance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And you, you brought up the Old Testament context. and There's some Levitt cards that just went up. You brought up the Old Testament context. For those of you that want to go deeper into specifically that event, uh, we do have on our audio episodes audio podcast on the bible lab.com we do have in the series called life in the wilderness which is a really tough place for some people who see a god who's very much an authoritarian disciplinarian um so if you have questions about that definitely that's why we put them up there so that you can have that opportunity to not have missed out on that conversation or to go through a refresher if you need over here terry or diana there we go well
3: just just my experience of going through the bible i try to go every year, but when I start going through kings, and judges, and oh my word, (laughs) so I have to keep reminding myself, now that I am older, and have read through the Bible, I keep referring them back to the New Testament, because the Old Testament is pretty heavy, as to God being the judge, God wanting to kill people, and whole communities, and whole, you know, Mm -hmm. tribes, but remembering it this is also the human beings are translating that to what they believe God is wanting them to do and has said to do. And I keep reminding myself that the new Testament has Jesus and that's what I count on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I probably the most difficult series we've done in four and a half years was uh, called judge of judges, the judge of judges. It was more different. It was the most difficult. Second, most difficult was Daniel that we just went through. Um, But, uh, yeah it was really tough for me going through that just saying what can you find about God and one of the things I did come back to just like what you were referring to is that yes the Bible is inspired we have to be really careful about how you understand what I'm about to say yes the Bible is inspired but the Bible is also through your lens and the writer's lens it was not it was not inspired word for word. The, the Seventh-day Adventist fundamental belief on scripture is that it was thought inspired, not word for word inspired. And because of that, it always goes through you as the filter. And I don't know if you've had a conversation. I've, I've got a, uh, I have a relative, uh, we call Grandpa um And he has a viewpoint about scripture and I love him dearly. And I love his passion and his zeal but he comes up with a different conclusion than I do about what God really wants in certain situations, and yet he's still a man of God, and yet he's still a beautiful human being, and he and I love each other deeply, but even though God is inspiring him with thoughts, his perspective of God is different from my perspective of God because of his experience and where he came from and even his generation is different from mine and what's questionable and what you're not allowed to question. And so because of that, you also have to read through scripture responsibly in saying there are times when people attribute to God something in a way that you're like, but that doesn't really jive with the Jesus I see in the New Testament. Quite frankly, we went through a series on Hosea where it's 750 years between Joshua uh, and Jesus, which they both have the same name, Yeshua. It's, It's just you know, a change in language. Well, the cool thing is Hosea is the same name as Joshua and Jesus as well. And 750 years exactly between. And the reason why this pivotal prophet is there is because Jesus says, you guys don't understand me. You won't recognize me when I come because you see me as this way, but I'm actually this way. And because of that, I need to help you start changing your perspective of what God would do and what God would never do. And so it's true. Uh, I think the red mic was next here. Oh. Yeah, Sharon.
3: <coughs> I think there are several things we need to uh, be in mind, keep in mind here. In Romans, God, Paul speaks about God letting people go. Mm-hmm. And that is the way he does in the Old Testament, too. Every time it seems that he says, I'm going to remove the pre- the protection from you and let these people come in. And so that's what happens. He takes the blame because that's what the Old Testament God had to do. But he always says, I will forgive you. Mm -hmm. I will just come back. I'll forgive you. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is I'm going to make a a commercial announcement. I really recommend the book, The Sonship of Christ, Mm -hmm. because it gives a picture of the Trinity that shows the pain, the anguish among the Trinity when Jesus had to break with them and come mm-hmm. to this earth. They're all interested in saving us, all of them. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Blue microphone, yeah.
1: Uh, the first point is about God. We seem to forget one verse, John three sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. What does it say? For God hated the world? Is that what it says? Yeah. It says, for God so loved the world. Yeah. And and every time I'm tempted to think differently, I go back to that verse. And now, since I'm a theologian, let me address one more answer here to this young lady about the the Old Testament. I'm not a theologian, by the way, I'm a PT. Uh, Well, help us work out these kinks.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
1: So the Old Testament, because I'm also reading the, the Bible through uh, every year. Cool. And when I go through these books, I keep one thing in mind. That God is love. Yes. But you say, how can you say that when you have, you know, children and babies and animals killed? Mm-hmm. Because God told them to do that. When they went to a certain city, they said, God said that the 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 cap of iniquity has been filled Hmm. and so it's not that these people took it upon themselves it was God remember when Abraham left you know the land of Chaldea and 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 he was going to the promised land why didn't God give it to him because God wanted an opportunity for these people to repent Hmm. but the cup of iniquity was full and God said, "Go ahead." And one more thing we seem to confuse that Christ, in the New Testament, is the Christ of the Old Testament. Yes,
0: is absolutely. no different. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And one more reminder: uh, we all need to go back to Life in the Wilderness that series, Life in the Wilderness, and and see because we had to wrestle with that, you know, w- with those commands, and just see what what it was really saying. But I love that green microphone.
3: Yeah, I remember, it, to piggyback on several other comments, not really understanding the Old Testament because I didn't know the context. Yeah, And that's what, what Roy, you, and the Bible Lab has helped to show, to reveal what is the context yeah. of the situation rather than reading it at face value. Yeah. And so when you go to the Old Testament, reading it at face value, that's a very mean, vengeful yeah. God that... that yeah. Most people don't want to have anything to deal with. So how, how yeah. can you say that he's, that he's loving when he's like this? Absolutely. And um, yeah. so
0: it. Every, everyone here who's had teenagers understands not to take it seriously. When one, when one of your kid's friends says to them, you can't do what? Your parents are so mean. <laughs> do you take that seriously? Are you trying to be mean? Yeah. Are you trying to be loving? I mean, God is our heavenly parent, and there are individuals who look and say, God is so mean, not understanding the loving parent that he is. And that's what's been revolutionary for me, is going through these tough places of Scripture and answering, but what's the parent's perspective here? What's the end goal? What's the desire? Is it to enslave and to command and, you know, be a tyrant Or is it truly to give you your best life possible, to give you eternal life, and to help keep you from as much pain as possible until then? And so, you're right, it's it's always a matter of perspective. Well, today in Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 10, we're going to take a different perspective of what does it mean to be in this walk of trying to be in a saving relationship with God. In verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm going to read from the NIV, it's there in your study guide, it reads, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath verse 4 but because of his great love for us god who is rich in mercy made us alive with christ even when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you have been saved and god raised us up with christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now there's several things here. We're going to try to to get to all of them. But first of all, let's just walk through this. And it's funny to use the term walk because he starts out that you're the walking dead. Once again, zombies, I'm sorry. You're the walking dead. In verses 1, 4, and 5, you can see he refers back to this. You were dead. Walking dead spiritual zombies just going through life. And even though you have a death sentence because of your actions, God, because of his great love and rich mercy, used the same magical power that he raised Christ from the dead, which we had in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, to give you eternal life. So let's break this down a little bit, because you can read through this, and because uh, not many of you, or at least not all of you, speak Koine Greek. You might have missed something here. So when we read uh, about God's great love and his rich mercy, what would the original hearers have heard that Paul was sharing about God's character? And first of all, this great love. You've heard the word. It's the godly, it's the godly word for love called agape. Okay, we have agape feasts uh, we, we try to share agape. It's this heavenly love that we know about. That's how we see agape. Well, it's a love beyond what I can do as a human uh, that's natural. It's not lustful. It's, it's, it's not I like something a lot. It's this heavenly love. And that's how we've defined it here. But how they would have heard this word, agape, is this is a love to them that speaks of a love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the one loved. We typically look at agape as it comes from the source of the lover, the person who is loving you. So God, because he's rich in this heavenly love, he's able to do this. And that's not what agape is. Agape is this selfless love because of his passion for you. It's not his internal passion that he welled up in himself. You welled up that love in him. It says it's a love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object loved. And if you haven't heard today's sermon by Randy Roberts, you got to hear it today. There's a story in there. I I won't ruin it for you but you got to hear today's sermon about a selfless act of love. That's agape. But the agape does not come because God possesses a perfect love that you don't. Agape comes because, as it says here, it's called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the one loved. You are that precious to God that he has a love for you that is the purest form of love but you are the source. He's the one giving it, but you're the source and the cause of agape. That's much different from what I grew up hearing. Secondly, because of this love that you've welled up in God's heart, it also says he has another storehouse that he drew from in order to give you salvation, and that's his rich mercy. And if you look at this word in in Greek, Plusios. It means, and this is the word rich. Plusios is rich in Koine Greek. It means wealthy, abounding in material resources, abounding, abundantly supplied. Now, some of you have friends or relatives, or perhaps it's you. If so, I'd love to get to know you a little bit better, but you're just filthy rich, okay? Just filthy rich. Or some of the people you know, they've got so much, that it doesn't even, it's, they don't hang on to it because ah, I got more and more is coming, more is on the way. And so they've got this, they've got this attitude about their wealth that to you comes across as kind of flippant. I got so much here, just take And you're like, no, no, that's too generous. I'll never miss it. That's the same sense of this koine word, uh, plousios, which God inspires Paul to say, look, God's got so much mercy that he'll never miss it. Here, I'm abundant, I'm overflowing. There's more where that came from. So it's not mercy like I grew up where we're singing the song, oh, be careful little feet where you go. The father up above is looking down in love. And zap, if if you get out of line, he's going to give you a little mercy, but not too much. Because you only have so much mercy. That's not what this word says he's got so much mercy that it doesn't matter how far your little feet go because his passion that's welled up within him for you, that you well up, added to his mercy that he's got so much he doesn't know what to do with it, added together, gives God this great loving acceptance of you despite who you are, what you've done, and where you currently are standing. So let me ask this question based on that, because looking at verses 1 through 10, a lot of times when we take just a verse here and a verse there and we, and we quote it, uh, we assign it to members of the Godhead. So verses 1 through 10, is this a perspective of God the Father, God the Son, or even of God the Holy Spirit? What's this a, a perspective of? And if you want to comment about it, make sure you raise a comment card. We're going to get a microphone to you. But is this talking about God's great love and rich mercy for us spiritually? Is it talking about God the Father or God the Son? And what difference would that make? What do you guys think? Take out your yes and no cards. I'll get us warmed up here. Yes and no cards. Is this talking about Jesus Christ and his love for you? <laughs> so most people are... Taking a long time to vote. Everyone has to vote, I'm sorry. You're all registered. Okay, so I'm seeking a majority of yes from those who are playing. Uh, Okay, let me ask this question Is this talking, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, is this talking about the love of God the Father? Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to do. Everyone's got yes. Okay. Um, So you're saying it's talking about God the Father and God the Son. Okay. That's what I thought too. Go back through. Go back through and read it. Because when you look at the pronouns and who's spoken of, who is it speaking about? Despite the fact that it mentions Christ, whose perspective is Paul writing from? God the Father. This is about God the Father. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is for the same reason that we started the, the conversation at the beginning. Is the difference of opinion that we, that we have of the character, the very nature, and the perspective of God the Father versus God the Son has got to stop. Because God the Father is the perspective of verses 1 to 10 here. His passion that's drawn up with him, his it's great desire, this preciousness that you hold in his heart, It just propels him to do the most insane action, to give his one and only beloved son to a world that could care less, who would spit on him, hurl insults, and ultimately crucify him, torture him to death. The very people, the precious people of God, God's chosen people. And this section of scripture is saying that's God the Father, because he sacrificed too. You may look at the physical scars at Jesus Christ's, his hands and his feet, his side, for all eternity, but God the Father has scars too, emotional scars, and every single one of you parents understand this. You understand it more than those who haven't had kids yet, and don't worry, those of you who haven't had kids yet, God will... God will make a way. God will show you uh, in time what it feels like for your kid to get hurt. Can you imagine your kid being tortured in front of you? That was what the Assyrians would do during the time of Jonah to, to try to win over and be more powerful is they would torture your kids in front of you. Um, that's what the devil did to God the Father is he tortured God's one and only son in front of him. The price a parent would have to pay to say, I'll sit on my hands. I could change this all with a word. I can wipe out specifically the ones I want to wipe out and keep the ones I want to keep with a word and to sit on his hands because of your preciousness to him and to allow his one and only begotten son to be tortured to death so that a payment could be paid not to God the Father. You got to get that out of your mind. It's not theologically correct. The payment was never made to God the Father. The payment was made to a devil. That's why they call it a ransom because there was someone who kidnapped humanity in the Garden of Eden. And a ransom had to be paid. The ransom couldn't have been paid to God the Father. It makes no sense. It was paid to a devil that said, during the third temptation of Christ, according to Matthew 4, when he takes him up to a high hillside and says, here's all the kingdoms of the world. They all follow me. Just do what I said in heaven. Bow down to me. My throne, then your throne, and then you have all humanity underneath you. You will not have to pay me what we agreed upon and yet God the Father says, you're so precious to me, I'll go through the worst excruciating emotional sacrifice just for the chance that you would one day say, hey, I'm kind of interested in having a relationship with you. This is an amazing picture of the love of God. We see it in Jesus Christ through his physical sacrifice, but we ignore God the Father's emotional sacrifice, a God who could easily have stopped it all and stopped all of our hearts said no it's still worth it because of his great love and his rich mercy now something's going on something's going on with the Ephesians the same thing that's going on with us the same thing we study in Daniel chapter 10 where we see there are principalities that are fighting a battle it's the real battle this is the one we see—the physical battle. But everything that happens in our physical realm is a reflection and a reaction to what's happening in the spiritual realm. And what the people knew about there is that there's something going on around us to get us to argue, to get us negative, to get us fighting, to get us w- against each other, and not be loving each other. These communal thoughts—we're like, where did that all come from? And then we're all, we're all a mob mentality do, doing something. And they understood this because they had a phrase for it. And that's what this really weird phrase is that you have there in verse 2 of the kingdom of the air. Now, one clarification really quick, and then we're going to move on. A clarification, they didn't view kingdom of the air as something like you're pointing up at the sky. They viewed the air as everything around you. It's the unseen around you much like we talk about dark matter in science today it's here but we just can't see it they would talk about the kingdom of the air which was you breathe it in it's it's actually part of you and it's in you and it's around you it's it's all around you and this was the realm the kingdom of the air was the realm of the spiritual where the forces of god and the forces of the devil were doing battle for your allegiance of your, your decisions for whether you want to follow God or whether you don't want to follow God. And so this kingdom of the air, he's saying, look, you're dead because as you're living in this kingdom of the air, you're being convinced that God is not loving, that God doesn't love you, that God's just a judge. It's just about rules. It's just about religion. It's about right living and modifying your behavior. He said, no, no, no. That's the battle that's going on in the kingdom of the air. Let me tell you a little bit more about the players and the God whom you serve took you when you were dead and made you alive. Now, let me ask you a question. I love, I love this terminology that he uses three times here and he uses it later on and, and he used it earlier in chapter one. Let's say, just for fun, that you died right now. Save yourself. Get up become alive again is that the most ridiculous instructions you would ever hear coming from someone seeing someone who just died yes nobody knows more than me and I regret having to bring it up but nobody knows more than me eight and a half years ago being dead for 11 and a half minutes I was dead because I had a heart attack no one was standing around there because it was a uh, fortunately it was a church group a church event I was at no one was standing around and saying come on Roy Don't be dead. Just say, I know you can still hear me, just say in your heart, I'm not going to be dead. You would say that's ridiculous. Instead, I required someone else to come and place a defibrillator on my chest to say clear and to push a button. Had someone else not come in I would still be dead that's what Paul is saying here if God had not stepped in and done everything you would be dead because a dead person we know from Ecclesiastes 9 5 through 10 a dead person knows not anything you have no more a part of anything that's going on and so how in the world can you be responsible to do anything to make yourself alive again and so that's why he goes on in verses 7 through 10, to express, so what did God do to put the spiritual defibrillators on your chest? Because it's him, it's a gift, it's not you, it's not by works. You couldn't do anything. You were dead. So you weren't expected to do anything. So he goes on in verse 7 by saying, let me tell you a third ingredient, because I, I share with you the reason why. The reason why God came over and said, I will take you from your state of death to a state of eternal life. And we know why it's because of his rich love, uh, excuse me, his, his great love and his rich mercy. But there's still one more ingredient that allowed you to go from a state of death to a state of eternal life, and that's his incomparable riches of his grace. Here, Paul adds the term grace to God's love and mercy as the ingredients that raise us from death to life. So I want to ask you, so get your comment cards ready or question cards ready. Why do you think all three of these are a necessary part of your spiritual quickening? And what does this say about God? Three things, love, mercy, and grace. Let me ask you a question, yes and no cards. How many of you are saved? Right now, how many of you are saved? I know that's the hardest question to ask an Adventist crowd. Because we're supposed to respond with a third card that says, well, there's still some things I'm working out. I know, but that card's not in your pack. (laughs) For a good reason. Because as you read the scripture and you see in verse 5, it says, He made us alive with Christ, even when we're dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It doesn't say it's by grace you will be saved. Right? It's very clear. There is a past progressive element to this. You were saved in the past and you're continuing to be saved. Okay? You have been saved. So, something happened. At some time when the spiritual defibrillators came onto you and changed you from walking dead to eternal. So, why do you think it requires love, mercy, and grace? What are you seeing here?
2: I tried
5: not to do this, but I'm going to do know, this. I
0: know, and that's why, that's why <laughs> I allow the awkward silen- silence. It's my greatest tool. I mean, tool. Hebrews
5: says that Jesus died, Christ died once for all. And that means he was resurrected once for all. And, and to me, that's the great defibrillator reset of the human race. Yeah. We have all been saved. And, and whether or not we make it through the pearly gates, that's another issue. But that's, I, I just have to say that. Because praise God, Jesus Christ um, is, our, is our salvation in that in that one act
0: it's absolutely true and it's so simple people have a hard time believing it we've we've had uh you know our our men's events that that we go out and 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 the men have pizza and there have been times that uh we've bought a bunch of pizza you know the guys didn't have to pay for any of the pizza bought a bunch of pizza and we invited all of you But some of you showed up for free pizza. We didn't ask you any information. You didn't have to sign up for something. You didn't have to do it. You just had to show up for pizza, and you got the pizza. Um, could it be that God's grace, his generous gift of eternal life, is that simple? You just need to show up to receive it. Um, we're going to talk about the, the role through faith, here in a minute, because I think this is vital in not misunderstanding what I just said. Because some people will say, if you believe you can live however you want, and then when Jesus comes again, well, I can point back to one time that I said I believed, and and so that counts, right? That's not a relationship any more than you getting married, and then she lives in California, and you move to Florida and say, I'm married. Well technically and legally you are but relationally you're not emotionally you're not married because you've decided to live apart so we're going to talk about what it means through faith and in, in just a moment it has a lot to do with that we're going to go to the purple mic next yeah
3: i was just going to say um when christ died it was the love mercy and grace you know we cannot keep the law on our own
0: no it's impossible
3: and when Christ died, he, that's what he did for us. So when you think about the great love that he has for us, Mm. it just, it moves you to righteousness to want to do what God says.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Isn't that what scripture says when it says we love him because he first loved us? You know, there, there, there are deep, close personal friends that you have. Maybe they're lifelong friends that, that you've made where they just look like normal people when you bumped into them at first. Maybe it was at work or maybe it was at church or you know, maybe they're even family members. And, and when you first you know, came to them as a couple, you're like, or as an individual, you're like, ah, they look okay. But then you found out, this is the most loving person I've ever met, the most selfless person I know. And it just drew you toward them. And, and you're like, I couldn't imagine my life without them. And it's because you realize what love does to draw you, it's the same thing with God, only magnified an infinite amount of times, because his love is beyond our understanding. And once you finally understand it, it's, that's what draws you in to be this fervent follower is because you realize this is so different than anything else I can get with any other relationship on earth. Red microphone right here.
5: On your situation, there is a person that will charge the machine. You have the AED machine. <laughs> My question to you is: What happened if no one charged the machine? Because there was a situation in the hospital when something like that happened. We tried to charge, but somebody forgot to plug the machine all this time.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
5: So that's why we need love, mercy, and grace.
0: Yes, and all- one and one more ingredient I would add. Because Jesus warned his apostles about this um, in Acts chapter 1. And uh, he says, Don't do anything until the one comes who will bring the power. You can have a machine, guys. We can have a machine. We call it church. And if it doesn't have the power, Jesus warned His apostles, they had spent three and a half years with Him. They knew all of His teachings backwards and forwards. They knew it better than we do. And Jesus said, wait, because if you do it without the power, people are still going to be dead. Okay. you are not going to bring people to eternal life. And that power is the Holy Spirit that came in Acts chapter 2. Amen. How many things do we do in church that don't require the Holy Spirit? I say we need to stop doing everything that doesn't require the Holy Spirit because we're wasting our time and we're killing people, thinking that we're saving them. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Randy.
4: I've got a lead foot. And when COVID hit, <laughs> the streets were bare. I got pulled over three times how, that for was speeding. my next question is how many tickets? <laughs> I hate that sound. Boo! Behind yeah. you. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> you've heard it enough. You can okay. Never mind. Go ahead.
4: People look at God as that police officer that gets off his bike and comes over. Yeah. But we don't realize he comes over and he writes a ticket. And imagine if it was a two thousand dollar ticket.
2: Yeah.
4: And he gave it to you, and you know you were guilty. I was guilty every single time. Yeah. And um, and. All of a sudden he says you know what you've got the ticket but he doesn't tear up the ticket he takes the two thousand dollars out of his pocket and he gives it to you and he says here you go and not only does he do that he, he takes out another hundred and says take your wife out for dinner yeah
0: yeah that's what God's like absolutely absolutely
4: so he's not like
0: a cop He's not like a cop. I, uh, a pastor, uh, several years ago, I heard him preach in a sermon. I, I love this. He says uh, he's driving the windy roads of West Virginia, and he comes around the corner upon an accident, a really bad accident, people injured. And so he gets out of his car, and without thinking, he says, I go up, uh, and I ask, do you need me to call the police? And the, one of the injured driver looks at me like I'm crazy and says, we don't need the police. Call an ambulance. Um... Isn't God more of an ambulance than a cop? And I think that's what we miss. And the reason why so many young adults are leaving the church, because they think, I don't need to be policed. I need to be cared for. And so the more we change the perspective and help them understand, the Bible does not describe God as a cop, but as an EMT, who comes on the scene, triages, and helps you get... From where you currently are in a state of potential death, and brings you to a point to now you can freely choose what do I do with the rest of my life, and that is the picture that continues to be shown here. Can I can I show you a couple more things? Uh, okay, we'll do a, a microphone back here, and then and then we'll go. Sorry. I like um,
5: I like science. Me um, too, particularly uh, physics. Yeah, and I guess we all are going to have many questions when we are going to be with Jesus. Yes. Why? And how the matter goes to energy, energy to matter, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But as the Spirit of prophecy says, the main topic that we are going to study through all eternity is going to be salvation. Yeah. How come in the world that God, merciful as you were, saying and we are all talking about that Hmm. in his gracious love and riches came for me
0: yeah
5: and save me
0: yeah
5: it's gonna be through the whole eternity may God help us to develop that relationship today with him yeah before he comes yes thank you
0: that's profound that's profound thank you that's true That's true. As much as we're going to learn in all other areas of the sciences and life and just experience, I don't think it'll ever make sense. And I think that's why they call it the incomparable riches of his grace. Um, It's because you can't compare it to anything. There's nothing that you can say, well, he's like, you know, so-and-so did this. No, nobody, nobody ever went to the extremes for a people group like God, and no one ever will. Absolutely. When you look at verse eight, we see that this verse that we've quoted several times. Well, how are you saved? Well, of course, you're saved by grace through faith. Okay, we understand the by grace part, because we've talked about that a lot, and thanks to uh, pastors, uh, preachers like Maury Vinden in the 90s, we went through a lot of conversations about God's beautiful grace and we've come to some understanding of it's a free gift it's nothing you can do to earn it just an absolute free gift and we can go on forever about grace but many of us have gone down that road but we haven't spent a lot of time on the next phrase through faith and I think that's where a lot of people get hung up on well how are you saved it's well it's grace but isn't there something else you're supposed to do and then people say believe well yeah but how do I build my belief? Because I feel kind of shaky in that. And yeah, I know God wants to offer me a free gift, but how is it that I'm truly saved? Not working on my salvation, but can truly say I'm saved. And we have this phrase, through faith, that we haven't spent much time on. And so I researched, uh, what does it mean through faith? And some of the things that I found in the commentators is that through faith is built not because someone says, just believe something that you're told. Uh, Many people in the world, uh, when they talk about faith, um, especially those outside of religious groups, they view faith as believing a fairy tale that has no proof. But that's not what faith meant in Koine Greek to the original hearers of the word. Just like last week, we looked at hope. Today, we say hope as if we say, I wish. Like, you know, I hope I get to go to Disney World. I hope I get a Tesla. I hope, and that's like, I wish I had. But that's not how they viewed it. They, uh, hope to them was an expectancy. I will see it coming around the corner, was, was a sense. So hope was an absolute expectation. This is going to happen. And to them, faith was different as well. Faith was not believing in something you had no evidence of. To them, faith was something that was built by a relationship. You had faith in someone because they consistently acted in a certain way. They consistently did certain things to a certain level, certain degree, with certain outcomes. To them, faith was always built. Faith was never given. Faith had to be earned by the person or the thing that you had faith in. So faith to them was not based on something you're told, but you have no proof. Faith was faith because you had proof. And not only one proof, but multiple experiences, repeated experiences of consistency. So what it's saying here is, yes, you're saved by a free gift. But that free gift, what you have to do yourself is take a look at the gift giver. What have they consistently done that you can point to and say, I have faith because it would be out of character for them to do anything less than save me. And so how are you saved by grace through faith is not only saying, I believe God has eternal life for me. Yes, I want to receive this free gift that I know is available to everyone, but I need to personally look at the character of God, and see how much can I count on this? How assured am I of this salvation? Because only in that state of mind will you do the next step, believe. That's where belief comes from. It's the grace through faith allows you to then believe I am saved. That's how it is. Norma, you have a question. Could you just unpack for me the journey that um, of
3: of building that faith and understanding what's going on, and yet the times when I don't think I'm the only one yeah. you have the doubt. How yeah. do you unpack that?
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's First John two twenty. It says uh, uh, God is greater than our feelings, and and the the context of that is you can't allow your feelings of whether you're saved or in a saving relationship to determine whether you're saved or unsaved. I think the other thing is scripture had to wrestle this, where it Talk about where's faith come from? Faith comes from hearing. Um, that's the importance of community. And I know a lot of people during the uh, pandemic were saying church is not a building. And I agree, church is not a building, church is people. But those people have to get together because church is a community. And the thing that helps build faith is what we're just doing now hearing the Word of God, having conversations with the Word of God, because I know myself, the moments in my life that I've been the most negative and even considered leaving ministry, can you imagine that? It's happened multiple times. And consistently, it was during times when I didn't have an outlet like this to have a conversation with people who wanted to open up God's Word and have a conversation. That's what makes Bible study vital, not just going to a worship service, which is important, because we need to worship God, but in, unless we have faith-building conversations, our faith will crumble, it will go away. In the same way that if you're having a long-distance relationship, you're dating someone long-distance, the less communication you have, the more doubt you have of your relationship and its future. And so for me, that's that's what I found. We are out of time. Can you believe it? We could go another three hours here. But uh, that's what next week's for, I guess, is to start on that next three hours. But I want you to do a couple of things here. I want you to, during this week, I want you to read back through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as you're having your devotional time. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to highlight certain words to you that are specific to you in your faith walk and in your understanding of how you are saved and God's incomparable richness, His grace, His love, and His mercy for you, which is beyond anything that we could possibly imagine But we have to accept because God loves us so much. He's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. That's some of the best news you could possibly hear, isn't it? God the Father himself loves you with riches that can't even be compared to anything else in the world. I'm just so excited to have gone through that with you, and I can't wait to go through the second half of chapter two with you in this next episode, because in this next episode, what we're going to see is God's view of the outsiders and his plan, his very real blueprint to bring unity to those who are extremely diverse. At times like today, when we're dealing with so much diversity and so much disunity, I think this is a message you definitely want to hear. So I hope you'll come back for our next episode. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to
5: Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats and the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character
3: of God.